This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT10. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, All In with Chris Hayes, The Young Turks, Moyers and Company, The Bugle, Jim Hightower, and The Majority Report. And a note of clarification that you don't have to hate rich people to think that they're not paying their fair share like they were back in that conservative golden age of the 1950s. Once upon a time, there was a land that was happy and prosperous. It had a great education system, safe streets, and jobs for everyone. There were a few poor people and a few rich people. Most were in the middle. The people of this land paid for their good life by investing in their future together. They called this paying taxes. Everyone paid what they could afford. The poor people paid a little, the people in the middle paid a middling amount, and the rich people, 1% of everyone, paid more than the others. Just about everyone thought that this was best. But over time, rich people decided they weren't rich enough, so they came up with ways to get richer. The first way was through tax cuts. They didn't mind if there's been fewer services for everyone. They said, why should I care about other non-rich people? I can hire teachers, safety, waste disposal people to work for me for less money than taxes cost. And then I can keep the rest of my taxes for me. The second way rich people got richer was through tax loopholes. These are laws that allow people to avoid paying taxes with the idea that it's beneficial for other people too if this group didn't pay. The third way rich people got richer was to pay no taxes at all. This is called tax evasion. Of course, if all the people did this, everything would fall apart. But rich people and giant companies they owned figured no one would notice. This is illegal, but many did it anyway. And so it went. In 20 years, rich people doubled their share of the land's income. Schools, public safety, the roads, parks, libraries, public transportation, all went into decline. The rich people didn't care. They said everyone gets what they deserve. And they bought their own teachers, police, garbage collectors, and transportation. They also bought something else, elections. They spent so much money on politics, they elected people who liked what they liked. More tax cuts for the rich and big businesses, and fewer schools, road repairs, police, firefighters, and nurses for everyone else. When the 99% became upset, the rich people and their politicians said, There is no other way. They repeated this so often many people believed them. Meanwhile, instead of investing in things that most people could use, and instead of providing jobs that paid people well like they used to, rich people found they could make more money on Wall Street. Wall Street is a place where money makes money. Here, the 1% made money so fast that they devoted more and more money to it. They took some of that money and sent it far away, where workers had no rights to produce things that workers used to produce here. When ordinary people wondered why rich people needed so much money, the 1% said, don't worry, this is good for you too, because it will trickle down from us to you. Someday you'll be rich, and then the rules we made for us will be your rules too. Some people weren't so sure about this, so the rich people bought newspapers and TV and radio stations and internet companies and paid them to repeat over and over, Someday you will be rich too. There is no alternative. Soon you could hear people saying, There is no other way. Someday we'll be rich. 
Meanwhile, the rich people's money piled higher and higher. But after a while, it was piled too high. One day, the money fell down with a big crash. It fell down right on the houses of millions of ordinary people. It broke their houses. Then more money towers fell down. They fell on ordinary people's jobs. This is terrible. Everyone was scared. How did this happen? The government said, we have to fix this. They were so used to rich people being rich, they immediately started printing money and giving it to rich people. But they didn't give any to the ordinary people whose houses and jobs were broken by the crash. Those people said, you keep the rich people money to replace their money that got lost in the crash? Why aren't you giving us any to fix our houses and our jobs? They got broken in the crash too. The government had no answer. Now the people got mad. Since they weren't sure who to be madder at, the government or rich people, they got mad at both. Rich people got worried. They thought if the people get mad enough at us, they might take some of our money. This really upset the rich people because they loved their money more than anything in the whole world. So they devised a plan. They called it, look over there. Whenever people said, how come you rich people are getting richer while all the rest of us are losing our houses, our jobs, and our schools, the rich people pointed at someone else and said, look over there. First they pointed at the people whose houses were broken and said, look over there. Poor people caused the crash. They built their houses in the wrong place. If they hadn't done that, the money wouldn't have fallen on them. But most people didn't believe them. So the rich people pointed at someone else this time, teachers. They said, look over there. Teachers have jobs and you don't. No one can ever fire them. And lots of teachers are bad. The schools are failing. Teachers are the reason. Bad teachers. Bad, bad teachers. Most people didn't believe this. They remembered the problem was the crash, not bad teachers. The rich people realized it might be safer for them if someone else pointed their fingers. So they took some of their money, and even though it was just a little bit of their money, it was a lot of money since they had so much. They helped more people get elected. These politicians pointed their fingers at police, firefighters, librarians, and other public employees. They said, look over there. These people are greedy. They have jobs and you don't. You don't have retirement plans and they do. They caused the crash. Some people thought this might be true. They knew someone or something had caused the money to fall. Maybe it was the firefighters. But others remembered that firefighters helped them when their houses were on fire. They also remembered it was the 1% who built the money towers that crashed on their houses and jobs. Some people even remembered those towers of money had replaced factories and jobs that people used to have. And those jobs used to have retirement plans, too. And the ordinary people remembered that the teachers and firefighters lived in their neighborhoods and shopped in the same stores and didn't seem to be the problem at all. The people looked around. They saw too many students in their classrooms. They saw their roads filling with holes. They saw when they needed help, it took longer to arrive. People began to say, maybe rich people have too much money now. And maybe our problems have something to do with the 1% not paying their fair share of taxes. And also, maybe rich people should pay the same rate of taxes they used to when our land was prosperous and more people were better off. The rich people heard these things and grew worried. They told their politicians to pass laws to prevent people from organizing, prevent people from voting, prevent people from having retirement plans. But now the people understood the problem. 
It was rich people who crashed their money onto their houses and jobs. It was the 1% who got politicians to cut their taxes until there wasn't enough for schools, safe streets, libraries, health care, and parks. And it was rich people blaming everyone but themselves for what had happened. This is where we are now. And we have a question. Is there no alternative? Or can the people of this land do something to live happily ever after? In days that have long past, there lived a fair mahogany lass, a married and virtuous prince of last, she's brave, strong, and bold. Happily ever after One morning while riding, no guards around Armed with swords and trouble abound She heard the most horrible sound in her nose Burned with sulfur Happily ever after The sky darkened, her horse of fright The dragon swooped as black as night Grabbed the maiden and out of sight Her horse went frightened home a new report from the Agriculture Department says nearly 15% of U.S. households are food insecure, meaning they lack consistent access to food or the resources to obtain it. Nevertheless, the House is considering some $40 billion worth of cuts over time to the food stamp program many people rely on. And they have some unsurprising allies. Fox News aired a report last month they called the Great Food Stamp Binge, which purported to expose massive fraud in the food stamp program. Federal data indicate the program actually has one of the lowest fraud rates among federal programs, but no matter. Fox, according to Politico, is now delivering unsolicited copies of their expose to members of Congress, and it's being used as evidence in the House debate. The Fox show devotes a lot of time to one California man who brags about his ability to take advantage of waivers allowing unemployed, able-bodied adults without dependents to get assistance. And, lo and behold, there's an alert from Majority Whip Kevin McCarthy claiming, quote, newscasts tell stories of young surfers who aren't working but cash their food stamps in for lobster, close quote. As Politico says, the one guy's story, quote, is an image so powerful that the GOP leadership eagerly speaks of him in the plural, close quote. We might put that a little differently. It's an image so extreme that it encourages belief in a bigger problem than actually exists and policy based on that false belief. It almost seems like a prerequisite for modern life to have your own website. Long gone are the days of holding a steady job for 40 years, so we're all in a nearly constant state of flux, changing jobs, updating resumes, accruing accomplishments, filling portfolios with our accumulated work. The only thing that stays constant are those things we have personal control over, and that's why so many people build personal websites. It's how we manage our personal and professional images online. We show off our best work, present our resumes, or even start side businesses online because that's the promise of the internet age. 
Squarespace.com is the web platform for this new generational mindset. Their designers are creating new, ultra-modern, professional templates every month that are incredibly easy for anyone to use and will never leave your site looking like it's stuck in the past. All of their templates automatically adjust to perfectly fit the screen size they're being viewed on, so every site built with Squarespace is customized to evolve along with the evolving technology of smartphones and tablet computers. So whether you're building a business, promoting your accomplishments, or displaying a hobby, you want to put your best foot forward, and I think Squarespace is the best option available today to do just that. So go ahead and give Squarespace a try for free for 14 days. Then, when you're ready to sign up, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT10, that's L-E-F-T and the number 10, to get 10% off your purchase. So consider paying for a full year up front. It's the savvy thing to do. You get 10% off the full year instead of just one month. And that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show with your purchase. So again, the offer code is LEFT10 to get 10% off when you create your own space at squarespace.com. So I'm in Crystal City and I'm buying my groceries. And I noticed that everybody was giving that cord. Everybody, I mean, they had these huge, huge baskets, and I realized it was the first month. But then I'm looking over, and there's a couple beside me. This guy was built like a brick house. I mean, he had muscles all over him. He was in a little tank top and a pair of shorts and, and really nice Nike shoes, and she was standing there, and she was all in shape, and she was, it looked like they just came from a, a fitness program. I mean, she was in the spandex, and well, I mean, it, you know, she was, they were both physically fit. And they go up in front of me, and they pay with that, with that card. Fraud. That was Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen, a Republican from Oklahoma, telling a town hall his story of food stamp fraud at a grocery store in Crystal City, Virginia. This couple was in great shape, so what do they need food stamps for? Now, to his credit, he did stop short of describing the fraudsters as possessing calves the size of cantaloupes. But that story of supposed fraud in the nation's food stamp program, also called SNAP, is a long-running and currently intensifying mythology on the right. Most recently, House Republicans have been waging what amounts to an all-out war on food stamps, turning their institutional attention to fighting the scourge of hungry people getting food. Last month, they took the unprecedented step of stripping the nutritional assistance program from the Farm Bill altogether and are now concerning $40 billion in cuts to SNAP over the next decade. But in some ways, Republican lawmakers are simply following the lead of the right-wing noise machine, which has now decided to focus its efforts on turning food stamp recipients into the next welfare queens. Last week, Fox ran an hour-long special called The Great Food Stamp Binge, dedicated solely to misrepresenting a program that feeds millions of hungry Americans. All paid for by our wonderful tax dollars. We are just a hair away from large-scale hunger, malnutrition, and starvation in America. Do you really believe that? No question whatsoever. <laughs> You're just laughing. Absolutely preposterous. You and your volunteers stop and explain food stamps uh, to just about every person on the street. Yes. Uh, it could be construed as 
recruitment. The 29-year-old has chosen the life of a beach bum in this seaside paradise. With no fixed address, Jason has, for the last couple of years, floated from place to place, staying with family, pals, and girls he's dated. This is a nice day today, though, huh? He gets by with a little help from his friends and you, the taxpayer. If it's just a question of money and benefits, then you can diminish and dull their incentive to work and achieve and, and to rise above difficult circumstances. So I think there's a real moral question here. Food stamps as a specific program is one of the most obvious ways in which the government has reached into American neighborhoods and says it's okay to be dependent. Thank you, taxpayers. Thanks. Do you feel guilty at all about doing this? No. Now, let me take a second to cleanse your palate from what you just watched with some actual facts about the food stamp program. One of those is that fraud in the food stamps program is at an all-time low. Less than 2% of SNAP benefits go to households that do not meet the program's requirements. And contrary to what Fox News would have you believe, the program is actually underused. Listen to this. A quarter of all the people eligible for food stamps don't sign up. And less than 40% of seniors who are eligible signed up in 2010. Knowing those facts, let's look at who is receiving help from the program. According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, roughly 91% of SNAP benefits go to households below the poverty line, which is about $23,000 for a family of four. $23,000. And 55% of SNAP benefits go to households with incomes below half of the poverty line about $10,000 for a family of three. And many of those people, the people who Republicans characterize as moochers and fraudsters, they also happen to live in areas that overwhelmingly support Republicans in the reddest of the red counties. Listen to this. Today, Bloomberg reported that among the 254 counties where food stamp recipients doubled between 2007 and 2011, Republican Mitt Romney won 213 of them in last year's presidential election. Did I disappoint you? I leave a bad taste in your mouth. You act like you never had them. And you want me to go The House Republican plan to cut $40 billion from the SNAP food stamp program over the next 10 years has been getting a lot of media attention, but sometimes reporters let balance get in the way of the facts. In USA Today on September 18th, readers were told that the costs of the program have exploded. Why? Well, here's the paper's explanation. Quote, Democrats say the program has grown because the economy tanked. Republicans argue much of the expansion is attributed to states giving benefits to people who do not qualify, close quote. Well, we know there was a massive economic collapse and a painfully inadequate recovery, so that's reality. But Republicans say the program is full of fraud. Is that true? 
No one could know from this USA Today account. A politician who agrees with the cuts says so, and one who opposes them says that's a lie. Who's right? Well, we know that there's evidence that, according to the Inspector General of the Agriculture Department, there's basically no serious overpayment fraud. And the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities reports that SNAP, quote, has one of the most rigorous payment error measurement systems of any public benefit program, close quote. The group also points out that historically, and rather predictably, food stamp programs swell in times of economic distress. So why can't USA Today report these facts? Perhaps because it would seem like they would be taking a side. They'd prefer to take no position. That's why the subhead of the piece says that these cuts could cut waste or hurt poor, depending on viewpoint. That's perfectly balanced journalism and horribly misleading. Republicans in the House of Representatives accomplished one of their long-term goals. They've been fighting for this for some time. They're going to be doing massive cuts to food stamps in America, totaling potentially $40 billion over 10 years. Now, we have yeah. a quote from the House Majority Leader uh, saying what they're doing, his explanation for it, but then we're going to tell you what actually happened. So uh, Eric Cantor says, This bill is designed to give people a hand when they need it most. Most people don't choose to be on food stamps. Most people want a job. Most people want to go out and be productive so that they can earn a living, so that they can support a family, so that they can have a hope for a more prosperous future. They want what we want. But what we want, by, the, what, by that I mean the Republicans, is to do massive cuts to food stamps. And so the Congressional Budget Office has estimated that the House legislation would deny benefits to 3.8 million Americans next year and save $39 billion over 10 years. Uh, it would also allow states to deny benefits to able-bodied adults who don't work or enroll in training for at least 20 hours per week. It would also make it easier for them to institute drug testing before gaining uh, these benefits and things of that sort. And so Eric Cantor can say whatever he wants about this being a helping hand to the American people. I think he's putting out his hand and he's raising one finger. Yeah, well, and, and that's true, John. And, you know, I mean, it, it's uh, at least the Republicans are just as harsh on the uh, the overspending and the overindulgence in the at the Pentagon, right? I mean, you know, oh, with those yeah. military subcontractors uh, that, that go into the Pentagon, they're cutting and slashing all of their money and 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 prosecuting them too. And, and in fact, in this same bill, in the original version, when they cut uh, the food stamps, they made sure to keep the subsidies for agribusiness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you're a giant multinational corporation. Well, we're going to keep your subsidies because poor corporations, right. what are you going to do if you only make a couple of billion dollars in profits? Well, not to well, mention. Are any of these agricultural businesses in jeopardy of going under without the subsidy? Well, they are because they're taking the food stamps away, so those people can't afford to use their food stamps on the company's food, so that's why they're subsidized. No, no, but that's like, there's actually some truth in that. Uh, yeah. Because I guarantee you the lobbyists for the agribusiness went in there and said, look, if you're going to cut food stamps, that cuts us a little bit, so make sure you keep our bribes going. Make sure, I mean, we, I'm sorry, we're bribing you. So so make sure you keep keep that graft going and the and the subsidies rolling in our direction. So I don't get care at all if you destroy poor people in this country. But you will not touch our bottom line. Make up our difference. Yeah, make unless, the difference up. of course, you're going to give us even more money. And the Republicans said, "Well, of course, sir, absolutely, sir. Do you think that poor schmuck's paying my?" 
campaign donations, you are. So your subsidies go up while we cut from the poor. Dan Frumkin, who is just about my favorite reporter, as you know, Jenk, he's been on the show. He wrote a great piece today about how this story was covered. And I think that we actually will make a mistake, because I read this Frumkin story, in sort of talking about this in the terms that we already started talking about it, correct as those terms may be. There's obvious hypocrisy here. They have taken a program that feeds hungry people and cut it. It is, a, it is an act of intense cruelty and, and, and brutality that should not go unchecked. And in the coverage of it, you know, it was treated like it's just another story. Again, well, here's what the Republicans said about it. John Boehner's quote, given without any context in the New York Times story, this bill makes, America, makes getting Americans back to work a priority again for our nation's welfare programs. The bill is not about getting Americans back to work. The bill is about taking, a program, taking programs that have fed, literally, by every study, millions of hungry Americans since the recession hit and cutting it. And these guys act in the quote here. There's another quote here from uh, uh, Representative Marlon Stutzman. Is that how we Stutzman, say yeah. his, her name? <laughs> uh, in the real world, uh, we, we measure success by results. It's time for Washington to measure success by how many families are lifted out of poverty and held back on their feet, not by how much Washington bureaucrats spend year after year. Yeah. It leaves out the fact that the point of the program is to feed Right, but you can't. You can't. You you have to go at it. And Frumkin's right. You have to go at it through the hypocrisy too. Jackie Spear gave a really great speech that I urge all of you to look up online uh, yesterday on the floor, talking about what these Congress people, when they go on these congressional junkets, what they spend. They get a hundred forty-one dollar per diem on one trip. They get. Food. They get steak in Argentina. They get uh, Russian vodka and caviar when they're in, and and they get paid. You know, they get money to buy it with, and they're the people that are taking food, as Ben is saying, to make it full circle. The hypocrisy is just incredible. So look, when you, when you look at the the program here, um, Fox News did a great job of demonizing the people who get it, and so that when. You hear the quotes that Ben is talking about. What the Republicans are basically saying is, if we deny you the food, then you'll finally get up off your lazy ass and get to work, and we'll have ironically helped you by knocking that food out of your hand, okay? Yeah. And out of your kids' hands, by the way. So how did, what was Fox News' angle on this? They found a guy named uh, Jason Greenslate in California, who apparently gets uh, food stamp benefits, right. uh, and he apparently surfs, because he's in California, and he likes rock music, which I believe if you're hungry or not hungry, you're allowed to r like rock yeah. music. But they did a story on him, and they're like, look, at the, the beach bums are getting the bums, bums. Because the kid used the phrase, free food. Right. Like, it's awesome. I get to surf and get free food. It's awesome. What could be better? Right. right. It's a classic thing. hatchet job by the uh, Fox News. And apparently they got every uh, Republican in the House to watch it. And then Representative Tim Hooskamp, and it makes sense. They're the propaganda outlet for the Republican Party. Yeah. Representative Tim Hooskamp says, uh, well, now you can no longer sit on your couch or ride a surfboard like Jason in California and expect a federal taxpayer to feed you. Yeah. So they've got one Jason who is, right. you know, serves and gets food stamps. There's 47 million other people, and I've seen a 60 Minutes report of this family. Both the mom and the dad were working because of the recession, they lost their jobs. They're trying to make, just desperately hang on to a hotel that they've now moved into because their house was underwater and they couldn't afford to pay it anymore because they lost their jobs. And there's a middle class, white family in the middle of the country, etc. 
and the kids are literally hungry. They they have they don't have anything to eat because the guys because their parents don't have a job, right? And the parents every day they go out and they look for a job. They look for a job. And they, they surf, I'm sure, because, right? Because you're right. Yeah. They got three kids. They're desperate to feed them. And in the midst of that, they get a little bit of food stamps so they don't literally starve, right? Now, you can find 47 million of those stories, but Fox News finds Jason in California, yeah. and the entire Republican caucus right. says, ha-ha, you see all these bums? Because that's how they view America. Guess what? There are, when, hundreds, when Ronnie, there are hundreds of Jasons, maybe even thousands of Jasons. Yes, that that's doesn't true. make the point. That doesn't make the point. The point here is that there are tens of millions of people uh, who are not Jason, who need this. And yes... They're always going to be in any system people who take advantage of it from the schoolyard on up. But the the point of this is you is what Ben said, what Frumkin wrote, what we've been talking about is you are taking food off the table of your fellow countrymen. And, so, and look, I got to add one last thing about the hypocrisy from my point of view. Look, if we were all in it together and we said, hey, look, at some point this program has gotten too large. Or you, you know, the Jasons of the program have gotten to a certain percentage, and we've got to reform it, etc. And like Michael said, we're cutting defense, we're cutting this, we're cutting that. Everything's taking a cut, and we actually would love to help the good folks in Syria, but we can't because we literally don't have the money to go and do bombings over there. So we're going to have to cut this program by five percent. Okay, then we're having a conversation. But if you tell me you're going to keep giving subsidies to Dow Chemical and Monsanto and all these guys, you're going to keep doing the wars, you're going to keep giving that pork over to all the people who donated to you, you're giving literally the most profitable companies in the world, the oil companies, about $14 billion a year in subsidies, our money going into their pocket, when they literally make more money than anyone else on earth, well then no, I'm not going to let you take money away and food away from 47 million people in America who need it, okay? No, then we don't have a deal. That means you're not earnest. You're just an incredibly bad guy who got bribed by certain people to take money from Americans and give it to your corporate donors. I did spy As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. And on this issue of widening inequality, there's so much uh, confusion. Uh, many people, uh, if they're... You know, if they're right-wing, they want to blame the poor. If they're left-wing, they want to blame the rich. There's a lot of blame going around, uh, but people are not looking at the actual structure of the economy as it's evolving. They're not looking at how we need to change the organization of the economy, why we are the most unequal of all advanced uh, societies and economies in the world. There is this popular misconception that the economy uh, is kind of out there. It's kind of uh, natural forces. Uh, they can't be changed. They're immutable. Uh, we all sort of work uh, for this economy. But in reality, the economy is a set of rules. There's no economy in the state of nature. 
uh, there are rules. I mean, the rules about property and liability and antitrust and bankruptcy and uh, subsidies for certain things and taxes for certain things. These rules uh, really are the rules of the game. They determine economic outcomes. Uh, if we don't like them, we can change the rules. I mean, if we had a democracy that was working as a democracy should be working, uh, we could adapt the rules so that, for example, uh, the gains of economic growth were more widely distributed uh, without a sacrifice of efficiency uh, or innovation. The latest data we have uh, from one of my colleagues at Berkeley, Emmanuel Says, and his uh, a colleague Thomas Piketty, uh, who have been the pioneer researchers in this field because they've been looking at uh, a source that nobody else had been looking at, IRS data, going back to uh, really the beginning, 1913, the beginning of the progressive income tax. And you uh, feature their work in the film. Since the film, uh, actually we, we put the film together, uh, there are new results that came out uh, just uh, within the last week or so uh, show that uh, in the year 2012, uh, inequality reached a new peak in the United States. The previous peak we thought was the peak, that is 2007, actually has been superseded uh, by this new peak of inequality, concentrated income uh, in 2012, that almost all the gains of economic growth uh, have been going to a very small number of people at the very top. The figures are so startling I had to shake my head in disbelief when I first saw them, showing that in the first three years of the recovery, from the recession brought on by the financial collapse in 2008, the top 1% of Americans took home 95% of the income gains. 95%? That's right. Uh, as the economy grows, uh, it used to be, uh, you know, within the memory of many of us, myself included, between 1946 and 1978, as the economy grew, everybody benefited. Uh, it was very wide, the benefits were very widely dispersed. Shared prosperity, we called it. Well, we called it shared prosperity. It wasn't socialism. I mean, Eisenhower was president through most of that. Uh, and uh, and we, did, we didn't consider it abnormal. We considered it normal. As the economy grows, we should all get something. Uh, and uh, it, during those years, the economy doubled in size and everybody's income doubled, even if you were in the bottom fifth of the income earners, uh, you did actually better. And then, and this is really the subject of the film, something happened in the late 1970s, early 1980s, to change that historic relationship between economic growth and the growth of productivity on the one hand, and wages. Uh, beginning in the late 70s, and uh, really to a greater and greater degree over the last three decades, all of the wealth, or most of the wealth, most of the new wealth in society went right to the top. Income gains went right to the top, and people in the middle, the median worker, the median wage, stagnated. Uh, in fact, since the year 2000, if you adjust for inflation, you have to adjust for inflation, uh, the actual median wage has been dropping. It's now 5% below what it was then. So help us understand in practical terms what it means when the lay man or woman reads that the top 1% of Americans took home 95% of the income gains. How can that be? Uh, I think that most people, if they really understand it, uh, will say, uh, this is not the America that 
I, am, I should be part of. This is not an economy that is working as it should be working. Something is fundamentally wrong. Uh, the game feels rigged somehow. And I think that's the conclusion uh, many people are coming to. Uh, it will, regardless of whether you are uh, consider yourself uh, on the left or the right, uh, many Tea Partiers are angry at the system uh, because there seems to be so much collusion between government and big business and Wall Street. That's where the Tea Party movement came from. Yeah, that, was, that intrigued me back when Occupy happened, that it, it and the Tea Party were both about the 1%. Both about what looked like a fundamentally unfair uh, subsidy going from everybody, taxpayers, uh, to mostly the top 1%, that is the people on Wall Street who had blown it, who had basically treated the economy as a casino uh, for the, much of their own benefit, uh, and leaving many of the rest of us underwater in terms of being able to pay our mortgages, uh, with our savings depleted because the stock market had basically reversed itself, uh, and jobless. And here we are five years after Lehman Brothers uh, collapsed and the Wall Street went south, and you say that the banks, the big banks, are still at it, still gambling. Unfortunately, they are. We don't even have a Volcker rule. Remember uh, when we had the Dodd-Frank Act that was supposed to clean up all of this, and a piece of it was kind of a watered-down Glass-Steagall. Glass-Steagall was the old 1930s rule that said you had to uh, split your commercial banking operations from your, basically, your casino betting operations. And, and you couldn't bet with my deposit. You can't bet with commercially insured deposits. Uh, but we couldn't even get the watered-down version of Glass-Steagall in the form of the Volcker Rule. It's still not there. Why isn't it there? Because you've got a huge, powerful Wall Street lobbying machine, a lot of money coming from Wall Street uh, that influences politicians, even Democratic politicians. This is not uh, a matter of partisan politics. Everybody's guilty. Uh, and the money is still determining what the rules of the game are going to be. And these are the people who are taking in most of the income produced by the recovery. Uh, not only, they're, they're taking in most of the income produced by the recovery, they're enjoying almost all of the economic gains, uh, and they are using their privileged position with regard to political power to entrench themselves in terms of their economic gains in the future uh, and their political influence in the future. So. You know, it's not unusual that many average people who are working harder than ever, worried about their jobs, worried about paying the next, uh, you know, uh, bills, living from paycheck to paycheck, are going to stay, you know, beginning to say to themselves, there is something fundamentally wrong here. Uh, they are not seeing their incomes increase if you adjust for inflation, and obviously you, in terms of real purchasing power, uh, many of them are seeing their incomes drop. Uh, they also are having less and less, enjoying less and less economic security, uh, because at any time uh, they uh, can be fired. Uh, you have two incomes they depend on, so the chance of something happening, uh, like a firing or uh, a, a company basically leaving town, uh, or one of them getting very sick, and uh, not being able to pull in that kind of income, uh, all of those uh, negative possibilities are themselves increasing. And meanwhile, upward mobility is fading. Uh, we used to have in this country uh, the, the notion that anybody with enough guts and gumption could make it. Uh, so even if you had wide inequality, it was okay because you could make it. You, you could, you could feast at the same table if you stuck to it and if you, if you really tried hard. That's 
disappearing. Uh, 42% of children who are born into poverty, for example, in the United States, will be in poverty as adults. That is a higher percentage than any other advanced country. Even Great Britain, uh, with a history of class, I mean, we, we, we think about Britain, we think of a class, a rigid class structure. Uh, only 30% of the kids who were born into poverty remain in poverty as adults because you see upward mobility is more of a reality in these other countries than it is now in present-day America. But talk a little bit further about corporate behavior. If, if they're sitting on record profits and no one denies that, why aren't they creating more jobs? The argument goes that corporations should be taxed at a lower level so they can create jobs or that money, uh, the, the, the rich shouldn't be taxed because they're they're job creators. This is where uh, the, uh, the problem really reaches back onto itself and explains itself, where we're in a giant vicious cycle. Uh, because if the middle class and everybody aspiring to join the middle class don't have enough money, uh, if uh, their wages are declining, their benefits are almost non-existent, they're worried about the next paycheck, they cannot turn around and buy what the economy is capable of producing. And in this country, 70% of the economy is consumer spending. So if you've got this giant middle class and everybody wanting to join the middle class, and they don't have the purchasing power any longer because most of the benefits of the economy uh, are going to the very top, and the top, uh, certainly, they're the ones who are saving. They're, their savings going around the world, wherever they can get the highest return on those savings. You don't have enough aggregate demand in the economy to make it worthwhile for companies to hire more people and expand. Don't you think the CEOs understand that? They understand the next quarter. They understand what's immediately in front of their noses. I mean, Wall Street is saying to them, don't plan for the long-term future. Uh, give us uh, the highest return we can possibly get. And so the average CEO says, uh, well, I have the, the best, you know, they're not all that many customers. I'm not selling uh, like I used to be selling. Uh, so uh, the easiest way of showing big returns is, uh, is I, I, I shrink my payrolls. I, I get lean and mean. Uh, and uh, maybe I outsource, maybe I automate, uh, whatever I have to do to get the costs down. Bill, I'm not blaming CEOs. This, this film is not about blame. But the fact of the matter is that the entire system is designed in such a way uh, that everybody is acting rationally given what the rules of the game are, but the rules of the game themselves are irrational irrational socially. They are not generating the kind of prosperous society that we need uh, to maintain an economy and also to maintain a democracy. For example, in terms of the, the, the people inside the system acting rationally, Microsoft recently bought the Finnish company Nokia. And I heard an eye-opening, ear-opening discussion of that by David Brancaccio on Public Radio's Marketplace, where you often appear. He's talking with Alan Sloan, who's the senior editor-at-large at Fortune magazine. Morning, Alan. 
Good morning, David. So I was writing those stories the other day about Microsoft buying Nokia, and I'm thinking they wanted a nice manufacturer of smartphones. You're saying there was more to it than that. Right. Microsoft has all this money overseas, and it can't bring it back into the United States without, God forbid, paying tax. So it's using it to buy a big foreign operation. So it's got this money rattling around. It might be nice if it bought something with it from its perspective rather than paying taxes. And it sees Nokia as an opportunity. Is this unprecedented? Hardly. Two years ago, Microsoft did the same thing with Skype. And a company called Cisco, which is what's known in the trade as a serial acquirer, something that buys one thing after another, has taken a holy oath not to buy anything in the United States unless the tax laws change. So it's more profitable to buy a company abroad than it is to bring your profits that you've earned overseas home and pay taxes on them. That's logical within the system. Within the system, it's logical. Uh, but here's where blame is deserved. Because, you see, very wealthy people, not everyone, but many very wealthy people and many big corporations use their money to buy rules that favor their position, uh, tax laws uh, that improve their competitive position, that entrench their wealth, uh, antitrust enforcement that may go against their competitor, certainly not against them, intellectual property laws that guarantee them a nice profit and extend the length of their patents or trademarks. And we could go through a whole list, Bill. I mean, the point is that with large size and a lot of money, goes a great deal of political power. And the more uneven the playing field, the more you concentrate income and wealth at the top, the more you are susceptible as a society to this kind of corruption. And it is corruption. There are people who disagree with us on this, as I'm sure you know. They even celebrate inequality. When former Senator Rick Santorum was running for the Republican nomination for president last year, he made a speech at the Detroit Economic Club. President Obama is all about equality of result. I'm about equality of opportunity. I'm not about e uh, equality of result when it comes to income inequality. There is income inequality in America. There always has been. And hopefully, and I do say that, there always will be. Why? because people rise to different levels of success based on what they contribute to society and to the marketplace. And that's as it should be. Well, first of all, let's be clear about what we are arguing. Uh, Rick Santorum is exactly right in saying that uh, nobody should expect or even advocate equality of outcome. Uh, the real problem is that we don't have equality of opportunity. Uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, number one, the schools available to poor and lower middle class and many middle class uh, families and their kids are not nearly as good as the schools available to the wealthy. Uh, the tax laws are weighted increasingly in favor of the wealthy. Uh, therefore, uh, a lot of middle class and poor people actually are paying, particularly through social security taxes, which nobody talks about. They all want to talk about income taxes. Uh, they're paying a much larger share of their income. Uh, the uh, laws governing uh, almost everything we can, we can imagine uh, are tilted toward shareholders away from those whose major asset is your house. So it's not equality of opportunity. That's the problem. If we really had equality of opportunity, uh, 
uh, we wouldn't even be having this discussion. I think, again, it's important to bear in mind that some inequality is necessary if we're going to have a capitalist system that creates incentives for people to work hard and to invent and to try very hard. The question is not inequality per se. The question is, at what point do you tip over? Do you get to a tipping point where the degree of inequality actually is threatening your economy, your society, your democracy? When do you reach a point where inequality is simply too much, where most of your people feel like the game is rigged? actually care about, of course, such as the likability gap. That's when polls suggest that a candidate is not testing as likable with the public, so his team will stop at nothing to try and find a particular colour of tie to fix that problem. <laughs> uh, then, there are, then there are the gaps that politicians really couldn't give two shits about, such as the wealth gap. Now, in America, that gap has become more of a grand canyon recently, so much so that stuntmen are currently lining up to perform death-defying stunts, such as tightrope walk across the wealth gap, as long as they can find a piece of wire long enough. Um, recent statistics proved that the income gap between the richest 1% of Americans and the other 99% widened to a record margin in 2012, breaking the previous record sent in, set in 1927. And bear in mind that the wealth gap in 1927 in America was between the two points of a man wearing a shiny monocle and a child washing its rags in an open sewer. So that was a pretty, pretty objectively impressive gap back then. Well, this has to be seen in historical context, John, because this is a great triumph for America. When these figures were announced, uh, America as a nation went, what's that? Oh, Mr. Khrushchev, you've gone eerily quiet. Stick that in your datcher and collectively farm it. So it's very much a great victory for America. Uh, kind of, uh, this, this, is the, this, is the, this is really the end point of the Cold War for me. Well, according to tax filings, the top 1% of U.S. earners collected 19.3% of household income. And that is just what they're filing, Andy. <laughs> take into account their Cayman Island bank accounts or the $100 bills that are stuffed into their comically oversized mattresses. And those statistics don't even focus on the even narrower Oprah percent, which is the very small percentage of people who are Oprah. Now, that group has once again done extremely well over the last 12 months, Andy. Some of these statistics are so horrifying, their impact is almost physical. It's like numbers suddenly have the ability to reach out and slap you in the face. Over the last tax year in the state, the top 10% of richest households uh, represented just under half of all income in the year. And over the last three years, 
95% of all income gains have gone to the richest 1% of people. Did you feel a physical reaction to those numbers? Didn't it somehow feel that those figures had gone into your ears, travelled through your body, and then spent a few seconds kicking you in the balls? I don't know how that's possible, and I know that it isn't, but someone tell me, someone tell my balls that, Andy, because they feel awful sore right now. <laughs> We've had uh, kind of similar uh, discussions over here. Uh, George Osborne earlier in the year at the uh, budget, I think, said those with the broadest shoulders should bear the greatest burden. Then stopped for a minute and said, sorry, uh, not, uh, not greatest burden, I meant flashiest golden cape. Those with the broadest shoulders should definitely wear the flashiest golden cape. <laughs> Which the complete lack of concern from most wealthy politicians in the face of poverty. It's the inexplicable anger that they have at the poor for somehow getting themselves into this mess. In the UK, <laughs> Michael Gove, who is Secretary of State for Education, but who also seems that he would feel right at home in a Dickens novel, walking through an orphanage, whacking children with a pointy <laughs> stick. He made some comments that, recently to, about... To be honest, John, that is actually part of his uh, education policy. So that... <laughs> Well, that's exactly. Uh, he, he made some comments recently about food banks, which is punching down so hard, I think he may have dislocated his shoulder. <laughs> he, he said during a departmental question session with MPs that users of local food banks can't budget properly, which I guess is true, Andy, if by that you mean to imply that they literally don't have enough money to form a functional budget through which to survive as a human being. If you mean anything other than that, of course, then you are a flaming arsehole. <laughs> Someone who, I believe in Spanish, you would call pendejo on fuego. <laughs> pendejo on fuego. Have you been doing some lessons, John? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. I think that means arsehole on fire, not flaming arsehole, but the, I'm hoping it gets the basic point across. <laughs> Wasn't that a title of a John Denver album? <laughs> what, what, Pendejo on Fuego? No, Arsehole on Fire. <laughs> yeah, I think it was just before the final album. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, Gove did say this. He's basically saying that people are using food banks because of, um, because of poor economic decisions. And that is true. The, o the only problem is that the economic decisions were not made by the people using the food banks, which must have made yeah. those little bits of gravel they were getting taste even more bitter. Yeah, look, what he's essentially saying seems to be, look, the government should simply help them make better decisions, such as the decision to not be poor. <laughs> My parents chose not to be poor and their parents before them. It boggles one's mind to try to understand why one would actively choose to be impoverished, but I suppose some people just love the taste of dirt. Just take your bootstraps and pull yourself up by them. And if you can't afford bootstraps, I simply don't know what to say to you. <laughs> This could possibly be paving the way for uh, the next uh, general election, uh, a nationwide cull of the poor. Uh, in fact, um, David Cameron was recently um, overheard in a one-man press conference in his own bedroom, uh, practising a speech in which he said, what do, they, what do they actually do? I know the last government cull of the poor, cunningly disguised as World War I, did not prove particularly popular, but I think the majority would accept that poor from other countries are now so much more efficient than our own British poor, and sacrifices will have to be made, literally in some cases. Where's my chainsaw? Bring forth the pleb! Ring, 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 ring. The current UK government has been widely criticised as being out of touch, but I, I actually don't think they would understand a poor person, Andy, if they were physically touching them with the sole of their shoe while standing on their face, which is metaphorically essentially what they're currently doing anyway. Because this currently comes on the back of the Conservatives in Britain also standing by their controversial bedroom tax, which docks 
housing benefit by 14% if welfare recipients in social housing have a second bedroom, something which is objectively not their fault, Andy, and is a massive, and, and also lines up with a massive shortage of council one-bedroom properties for them to hypothetically move into. <laughs> but this, this policy seems to think that you might be able to punish poor people out of their difficult situation, which is like a doctor hoping that a comatose patient will wake up if he repeatedly slams them with a plank of wood. I I guess it's theoretically possible, but even on the off chance that they do wake up, they're going to wake up justifiably angry. Well, that's it. Well, I mean, but this is is the right way to do it, John. If you've got a cat that appears to be very, very ill and you want it to be a bit more sprightly, the way to make it move is to shoot it repeatedly, and it will start twitching. It will definitely start twitching. The the current conservative attitude towards combating poverty seems to be the same attitude that sadomasochists have towards sex. Look, (laughs) if it doesn't hurt, you are clearly not doing it right. (laughs) According to the latest figures, one in three council tenants affected by the uh, housing benefit uh, cut have fallen behind on rent since the policy took effect. Now, obviously, this has not gone down at all well, and the government have just issued a response to these figures, saying, obviously, this is very disappointing and not what we intended with this policy, which was supposed to create equality, not division. Therefore, we will be ruthlessly targeting the remaining 66% to make sure that they fall into debt they can't afford to, or are forced to leave their homes, families and communities, just to see the looks on their faces. <laughs> priceless. Lighten up, guys. And uh, many have literally fallen foul of the new regulations, John, uh, in that they uh, have to take on extra jobs dressing as pantomime chickens to publicise International (laughs) Omelette Awareness Week, just to make ends meet. Uh, But, interestingly, it's been confirmed today, exclusively to the Bugle, uh, that the Queen uh, has has fallen foul of these uh, these new uh, housing regulations. It turned out that she had in her homes a total of 174 unoccupied bedrooms, as a result of which she and her current squeeze, Prince Philip, uh, have been relocated to one-bedroom council flat in Brixton, from where Her Majesty will continue to rule her subjects with her characteristic non-committal neutrality, very much a potato fist in a potato glove. In case you're wondering just how far Republican lawmakers have wandered off into the wacky weeds of far-right ideology, check out the babbling of Representative Paul Ryan, chairman of the House Budget Committee. He has pushed feverishly for gutting America's highly successful food stamp program. Why? Because, he rants, it's a government giveaway that turns our safety net into a, quote, hammock that lulls able-bodied people to lives of dependency and complacency. A hammock? A person's food stamp allotment averages under 450 a day. As for able-bodied people, does he not know that two-thirds of the program's benefits go to children, the elderly, and disabled people? In a society of gross and growing economic disparity, with mass unemployment and underemployment, food stamps are a minimal measure of our humanity and social morality. Forget the Paul Ryans. Here's the guy we should be listening to. Excuse me if I use strong words, he recently began, but where there is no work, there is no dignity. We don't want this globalized economic system which does us so much harm. 
pointing directly at the wealthiest elites who push relentlessly to shred government safety nets, he declared, widening disparity is the consequence of an economic system that brings about this tragedy, an economic system that has at its center an idol, which is called money. Such idolatry, he added, creates an economic culture that throws away the well-being of the many to enhance the fortunes of the few. We have to say no to this throwaway culture. We want a just system that helps everyone, he concluded. This is Jim Hightower saying, that's the powerful moral voice of Francis, the Catholic Church's new pope, who ended his comments with a fiery prayer, calling on people to rise up against the, quote, cult of money, and asking God to, quote, teach us to fight for work. Amen. God, give me style and give me grace. God put a smile upon my face. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Let's talk about the uh, massive income inequality. We certainly have policies that um, allow for this massive uh, income inequality. The top 1% incomes grew by 31.4%, while the bottom 99% incomes grew by only 0.4% from 2009 to 2012. The top 1% captured 95% of income gains from the first three years of the so-called recovery. I would imagine a lot of that is from uh, capital gains. The top 1% took more than one-fifth of the income earned by Americans, one of the highest levels on record since 1913, when the government instituted an income tax. About half of American households hold stock directly or through vehicles like pension accounts, but the richest 10% of households own 90% of the stock. Are you clear on what that means? The top 10% wealthy in this country owned 90% of the stock owned by Americans. The remaining 10% is held by another 40% of the country. 50% own no stocks. 40% uh, of Americans own 10% of all stocks and then 10% own 90% of all stocks. It's just a matter about ambition. You know, the term pull yourself by your bootstraps was first coined in irony. 
because you cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It is literally impossible. I watch my six-month-old son try and do it all the time. Pick himself up by his feet. It doesn't work. Hey, Jay, this is Marty calling from Los Angeles. I just listened to the food podcast. And a couple of things on GMOs. Uh, there was just a, a survey published by the University of Perugia that said that uh, they looked at 1,800 research papers and reviews and came to the conclusion that GMO crops don't affect biodiversity and uh, that there aren't any harmful effects from us ingesting GMO-containing foods. Uh, basically, they, they say that our digestive systems can't distinguish it from non-GMO foods, and we just sort of digest it. And then in your clip, uh, they referenced uh, golden rice, which is a genetically modified rice enriched with vitamin A that was designed to help millions of undernourished people in Asia and Africa. And Rachel Parent, the anti-GMO activist, she said that it was an ineffective product. But the latest version, and that's true of the first version, but in the latest iteration of golden rice, it delivers half the recommended amount of vitamin A in a single serving. And the other thing to, to focus on is that it's being developed by a nonprofit group. And unlike Monsanto products, uh, golden rice will be, uh, they've designed it so that you know, farmers can replant it. They've, they're not making a profit off of it. And basically, they would just grow it in place with regular rice. And they could say, you know, keep replanting. So while Monsanto is an evil corporation and they have like terrible business practices, transgenic technology is not inherently evil. And uh, but there's a lot of fear mongering and misinformation, and it's creating a lot of uh, resistance to adopting products like golden rice, which has the potential to save millions of lives. And I'm all for restrictions and testing and transparent labeling, uh, but GMOs they do have the potential to feed undernourished and. Uh, certainly, it's not a panacea. There's, you know, global hunger is a very complex, multi-layered problem. There's distribution. There's, you know, agribusiness. There's all sorts of uh, layers to it. But GMO could be one of the tools that could help those who need it. Uh, that's all I got to say. Thanks for a great podcast, and uh, I'll keep listening. Hi, Jay. It's Matt from Canada. Um, two things. First, I wanted to thank you for the conversations on the show and how they've changed the way I see and talk about privilege in my life. Uh, really interesting, and I think it's made me a better and wiser person. Number two, um, from episode 70, you were talking about food and food safety. I'm a guy who loves science, and I think as progressives, we have to have science on our side. One thing I want to mention is um, when it comes to GMOs, I really think we need to be careful in um, divorcing our views from GMOs from our views on corporations and how corporations use them. Certainly, there's a lot of corporations doing a lot of nasty and unpalatable things, and I think we need to make sure that we're not confusing their practices with the science behind GMOs. I'm not saying that all the science is positive, um, not necessarily, but I think we really need to make that divide. Um, the, the idea of saying that more study is needed before we can use GMOs just reminds me a lot of people who are climate deniers 
saying more study is needed before we do anything about climate change. I realize those two situations aren't exactly equal, but the um, the tone is, is a little similar and makes me want to think about it a lot more and be very careful. I also feel like there are similarities with what we see in vaccine denialism. So again, not saying that everything about GMOs is great, but I think we really need to be careful and when we're talking about the science, really look at the science. We shouldn't denounce something just because we get an icky feeling when we think about it. We really need to have, as progressives, science on our side. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or to relate your firsthand experience from a political event you've attended to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I have a couple of things to talk about. Uh, First, just an interesting thing that came to mind. I was making uh, the show for today, and I I heard the clip from Eric Cantor talking about how taking away hungry people's food stamps is for their own good because it will encourage them to work as if they had no reason to work otherwise. And, 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 you know, essentially it's saying, hey, it's for your own good. I mean, it's like horrible and evil and whatnot. But it struck me as an interesting mirror image, almost, of the argument that people like me make on a pretty regular basis that taxing the rich is actually for their own good because they live in this society too. And when the rich get taxed at higher rates and not only does it create a a smaller income gap as you know, today's show was making an argument about and and just the, the sort of the psychology of society is healthier when there is a smaller uh, wealth gap. But then in addition, the government actually has more money that it can spend on infrastructure or schools or you know mental health care or all those sorts of things that can make society better. And so we're essentially saying, hey, we're going to tax you at a higher rate, but it's for your own good. I mean, it's for our good too. It's for everyone's good, but it's for your own good. So you shouldn't object. And then you know the rich people and the conservative politicians are saying the same thing in reverse. Hey, we're just taking away your food because it's for your own good. And of course, the difference is that one, I think, makes perfect economic sense, and the other is horrible and, and you know, basically evil. Um, but it's interesting that we're shouting back and forth across the divide at each other that what we're proposing is for the other person's own good. Uh, the second thing I thought of uh, for you know today's comments is uh, you know in reaction to GMO foods and whatnot and, and the callers today, and it, you know, I really haven't heard much argument about the safety. Of GMO foods, and that's certainly not my focus because I know almost nothing about it myself. What I do know is that there there are no good arguments I have ever heard for GMO foods not being labeled as such. And I get why the companies don't want to do it. It would hurt their business. And that's because people would see that they're labeled as GMOs and then they wouldn't want to eat that food because they'd be afraid of it. But that's not my problem. That's the company's problem. And I don't think it's an insurmountable problem. Let's assume for a moment the GMO foods are completely 100% safe. Well, then that's the company's job to convince everyone that that's the case. And it's something that can definitely be done. You don't have to look that far back in history to come to a time when the general consensus was that lobster was a food only suitable for prisoners because no one else would dare touch them because they were revolting. 
Similarly, uh, you know, if I had been born 50 years earlier than I was, I would have grown up eating baked goods made with lard rather than, you know, Crisco vegetable solution goop. You know, people's opinions on food changes over time and usually with the help of, you know, being manipulated by giant corporations with advertising budgets. So at least they had to work for it. So in terms of the labeling requirement, I think that society is built in such a way that we're very separated from the food that we ingest. And it's just the nature of things. You know, if, if you don't want that to be the case for yourself personally, then you better start growing a garden in your, in your backyard or, you know, get together with your, you know, your local uh, farmer and, and, you know, be really in touch with where your food comes from. And I totally support that. But for people who shop at the supermarket, they're very, very disconnected from the food they eat. So the best next thing to have is accurate labels so that people can actually know what they're putting in their bodies. I think that's everyone's right to know what they're eating. And it shouldn't just be like, well, if you want to know what you're eating, then make it yourself, <laughs> go to the farmer's market or whatever. Like you should be able to go to a grocery store and know what you're eating. So I think that there's no good arguments for why you know, labeling of GMOs shouldn't be required. But once that requirement is there, those companies will kick into high gear and start, you know, depending on how you want to look at it, they will start tricking people into eating GMOs and make them think that it's for their own good because GMOs are better than natural food. That's what they'll say. That's how Crisco made everyone switch to, you know, vegetable goop instead of, uh, you know, lard. So, all I'm saying is that if these companies are going to make the food uh, with GMOs, then we have the right to know what's in it, and we should, and they should at least have to work for it by running a massive ad campaign that makes us all think that eating GMOs is for our own good, rather than taking the shortcut of hiding from us and paying the politicians to allow them to continue to not label their food or, you know, we saw in California, it wasn't the politicians, but they ran, you know, ran huge misleading ad campaigns to trick the actual voters into, uh, you know, stopping the labeling law. So either way, they either have to run huge campaigns and pay, you know, politicians campaign donations to get them to not label their food, or they have to run a huge campaign to convince people that they want to eat, to eat GMO food, and I lean in the direction of at least take the time. Do, show me the honor of at least tricking me to my face instead of trying to trick me behind my back. That's all I'm saying. So that's it for today. Uh, let me know your thoughts. The number, number again is 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. Of course, anyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and especially by uh, donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash best of the left. It's an incredibly easy way to help uh, support the show, share the show, and so on. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past
see past all the sad stories and one.